This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We're here with a film history, the history of film. It's KHJ, Charlie Tuna in the morning. 75 degrees today in Los Angeles because global warming really hasn't happened all that much yet. (laughs) (laughs) But just wait. Our grandchildren's going to be mighty hot. (laughs) Here's the doors. (laughs) All right. Are we recording? Yeah. I have no idea when Deb starts on this. Oh, me neither. Is it now? It can't be now. There's no way. Wait, it's coming up. Okay, hold on. Okay. Places. Places. The history of film. All your dreams can come true. Film history, the history of film. All of it made for you. Good God, that was terrible. (laughs) I'll figure it out. (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) Sounds good to me. Ladies and gentlemen, we have gathered here today to talk once more about our man James Cagney, part two, part two. Everyone, this is uh, film history. The, the history, history of, of film. film. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, I, had, I had some ice in my mouth. <laughs> I didn't know we were doing the whole coordination thing, and then you like paused and looked at me. I was like, "Oh, I was supposed to. I was supposed to jump in here." <laughs> That's all good. So for <laughs> all you listeners out there, the way you start a podcast is with a mouthful of food. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Be sure to take a big bite of something right before you start recording. <laughs> I didn't know I'd have to speak initially. Okay. No, I hear you. Yeah. All yeah. right. Welcome to Film History. The, the History, History of, of Film. film. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. We're going to yeah. keep it. We're going to keep that one. Yeah, we're on part two of James Cagney. Uh, we're definitely not re-recording this after already having recorded about six episodes already. This is our first time recording part two. Well, uh, your your tried and trusted associate Devin here uh, befuddled the uh, the recording on his end. So uh, you know. You know what? It's all good. There, there's a good side of this. We have now done way more research for James Cagney than we did when we originally recorded part That's two. Very so. True. You know, so now yeah. now yeah, we know. We're, we're more is, experienced now. It's, it's going to sound a little less rough, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> this is part two, Deluxe Revisited. <laughs> yeah, because, because all the episodes after this are so good. Like, 
Uh, and we really kind of found our groove, especially in Waterworld. Uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear that one in like yeah, two yeah, weeks. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so you know, it might not be the worst thing in the world that we're doing this over. Yeah, not at all. I'll give you a little recap on part one right now. Uh, I'm gonna let old radio voice man take over for a bit, <laughs> if you guys don't mind. Okay. Tune your dials <laughs> to 1955. Where we last left our hero. James Cagney grew up in a tiny, shabby apartment in New York City during the dawn of the 1900s with his mom, dad, and five brothers and sisters. His father, James Sr., was a drunken Irish boxer bartender who'd often practice his bottle toss and his left hook on his long-suffering wife and the other kids. As a child, James discovered a passion and talent in tap dancing. He danced on Celadors for money and even became known as Celador Keg. He also dabbled in boxing and baseball, almost becoming a pro in each. One summer, he spent some time at his aunt's house, who happened to live across the street from Vitagraph Studios, where he'd often sneak onto sets and watch his favorite actors work. This gave him the acting bug. And after a few small plays here and there, he managed to nail an audition for an off-Broadway play, and thus began a 10-year-long career on Broadway and in vaudeville. There you go. So recap. Thank you, Mr. Radio Man. Thank you. Where I meant to he... say 35 instead of 55, but whatever. <laughs> where, does, where does Radio Man go after this? He just walked out the Who door. Who knows? Who knows? He's going on to... He's going on to do the same thing for other podcasts, I'm sure. I'm sure he does this for a lot of places. <laughs> Wherever there needs old-time radio. Yeah, voice, exactly. Man, he'll be there. He'll be there. You so, just conjure him. Has not dived into film acting yet. No, not yet. So in part one, we broke down who James Cagney was as a person, uh, how he grew up, and ultimately the Broadway and vaudeville part of his acting career okay. was all in part one. And in part two today... We're going to dive into the absolutely fucking wild adventure that was James Cagney's film career. Okay. Because this is... James Cagney had a film career that started right there in 1930, three years before the Screen Actors Guild was formed in 1933. And so this was... This this episode is going to be a lot about how the studio system worked at the time, actors' contracts, uh, regulations... Well lack of regulations <laughs> and yeah like i said three years before the screen actors guild was even formed so there just wasn't really a whole lot of you yeah know, like human rights and sure, shit sure. going on in these studios anyway so like and it wasn't it kind of like record contracts day where uh they just um they're basically signed to instead of a record label it's like a movie studio and you do a certain number of movies for them under your contract exactly yeah okay. you would sign a contract for one studio and they would work you you're a workhorse you know these contracts were brutal usually unless the only the only way that they wouldn't be brutal is if you were like a big big name mm -hmm. you know then of course you would get a little bit better of a contract here yeah. and there but we're going to get into you know yeah. i mean i i teased it in part 1 a little bit but James Cagney at one point was almost killed on set with live ammo that oh, they used in the movie. And this was one of many films that he did where they used live ammunition on set. Do, did blanks just not exist? Like, did squibs not exist? It was just too expensive. <laughs> that was the thing. They had them, but it was like, no way. We can save some money. We know? can save so much money by actually <laughs> shooting them. Yeah. Was there, like, so there was someone's job on set, like, the like sharpshooter? He was a like, sharpshooter. He usually would carry a ton 
Thompson submachine gun, <laughs> and to steady his nerves, he would drink like a bottle of whiskey before he was going to shoot at you. His name was like Old oh Joe, God. you know. Have you guys, <laughs> right. have you guys ever but, shot a Thompson? Yes, I have. I, I fired one in Vegas once. <laughs> I did too. I fired. I shot yeah. one in Wyoming, and those things just take off. Those they are things, not sniper rifles. No, not at all. They're painters. That's why they called it painting yeah. it with lead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My grandfather carried one in World War II, and he told me, I mean, morbid joke, but he told me literally the way that you would shoot someone with this thing is you would aim at like the bottom left mm -hmm. of them and just let it sweep up to the right and spray them. Basically. Holy shit. This thing. Yeah. Well, so like, but at least was the guy, was it his job to be sharpshooter or was he also like the janitor that they oh, just pulled I'm over? Sure like, he, hey, did a, he was probably also like the bartender on set, you know, <laughs> mechanic, like, I'm, you know. the mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> hey buddy, can you come, we just need, we just need you to do something real quick. All right. Just this, take this, this gun and <laughs> this guy with greasy overalls is going to fire this Thompson at you. Don't worry. This guy's really good with it. But James Cagney, I mean, like I said, we'll get deeper into this in the episode, but it was so normal. It was so normal. It was like, oh, this is another live ammo scene, you know? Probably literally getting to this right now. What's the catalyst of him getting into films? Like, what did... Yeah, that is... A, that's perfect question. Uh, the last episode we ended in 1929. James Cagney, at the time, he was doing a play called Maggie the Magnificent with co-star Joan Blondell. Mm -hmm. And she's going to come up a lot. She, Joan Blondell was James Cagney's main, you know, co-star. The yeah. Angelina the critics, Jolie to his Brad Pitt. Exactly, exactly. The Drew Barrymore and, to his Adam Sandler. Yeah, <laughs> going forever. <laughs> oh, God. 50 first dates. Oh, Lord. Anyway, I just had to say it out loud. That movie happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the critics were so horned up for their chemistry on stage of Maggie and the Magnificent that the duo booked another play called Penny Arcade. Uh, this was a story about a mother who owns a Penny Arcade on the boardwalk of Coney Island and her two sons that live with her, one of them being Harry Delano, uh, played by Cagney, and her two sons are growing up to be gangsters. So Joan played Cagney's love interest, Myrtle, and Cagney played this, like, Coney Island kid who was breaking bad and mm -hmm. un under his mother's roof. Mm -hmm. You know, was, you know what I really... think of when I think of Penny Arcade on Coney Island? Monsters. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. They used to have a lot of it's weird interesting businesses back story. in the mob. Yeah, and actually that is what it was literally like mob owned penny machines along Coney Island. And <laughs> I, you would hear about this like like the seventies in New York, they had a big uh cigarette machine and jukebox racket that the yeah, mafia the was running in was New really York. Big. They would like beat yeah. the hell out of people if they didn't have their jukebox in Yes, the bar. yeah. You you put our fucking jukebox in your bar or your bar's gonna get a Molotov through the window. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. Wait, but why would the bar not want to put the or was the, or were they not giving the bar any cut well, of the Basically that they weren't giving them a big cut and also just a man coming into your business with a big suit on and he's like <laughs> either do this or I'll kill you, you know? Right. It just sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure, but why did it have to be so aggressive? I'm sure if they just went to the bar, it was like, "Hey, do you want to put this jukebox in there?" Was someone going to say, "Yeah, that sounds great." These mob guys were never very nice. <laughs> 
They never. It just seems an unnecessary thing to threaten Listen, someone to death with. About like the difference between somebody who dropped out of grade school and another person who like went <laughs> right. to Harvard Business School. Like right, right. Henry their communication Hill, techniques are slightly different. <laughs> like Henry, Henry I mean, Hill started killing people for the mafia when he was twelve. <laughs> like, these, these guys grew up different. Like, if you're selling drugs, there's no legal way to do that. But there's a very legal and profitable way to put jukeboxes in bars. It doesn't have to be a crime we ain't going straight see <laughs> we ain't going legit they had this idea for a legal business yeah. but they're like well we can't have a legal business how do we make this illegal this is actually a perfect transition right now because i just did that c thing okay look i listened back to the first episode of this james cagney might not have been the inventor of c i want to like put that correction in here right now did he ever do it at all and that's the thing i don't think he ever actually did that at all that's uh, awesome the, that makes it so yeah, much better <laughs> that makes it so much better right i his real claim to fame was another misquote by him which is you know you yellow bellied bastard mountain take it you dirty yellow bellied rat or i'll give it to you through the door it's a lot slower it's like you yellow bellied rat like right. it's it, yeah. it's it's a little it's kind of like the the darth vader thing where he's never said luke i am your father he said no i'm your father right he got right. misquoted throughout, throughout so, time. so i kind of misquoted the c thing on the last episode but we're correcting it now. We're here. It's all good. Oh. There's going to be a lot There's of There's going to be another correction later on where <laughs> yeah. we're like, actually, James Cagney actually, did He did C. invent he it. He did invent it. Yeah. So it might have been Edward G. Robinson. So for all you listeners, if you want the correct information, you can sign up for our Patreon. <laughs> right, right, right. The Patreon will have all the corrections. Find a way to send us a correction. I don't know how you do this. We'll maybe we'll, we'll set, set up an email. email. We'll set, we'll up, set up, an email. up an email for corrections. Cool. There'll be an email also, and a link in the description. Yeah, cool. but also, just to let you know, we're not going to go too crazy with that shit, because <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah, be yeah. here well, all day. I figure what we'll probably do is Patreon-exclusive corrections episode, and we take a shot every time for every correction or something like that. <laughs> no, like, we'll, find, we'll, we'll find some way to make it fun, but that'll be like a special episode we do once every... I don't know, month, and it's the, like a combination of the corrections we've gotten over like all the episodes right. since since then. We're going to do 10 push-ups so for every correction. So the way we filter all that is we just put an unpaid intern on it. And you there know, you go. Oh, for all well, you we'll listeners, we'll sign him to a studio there. contract. <laughs> sign him to a studio contract and shoot at him. <laughs> that, that might be a little excessive, but I'm still open to the idea. <laughs> well, we'll jump in here. So it's 1929. James Cagney's doing a play, Maggie the Magnificent, with Joan Blondell. The play never really like picks up speed. It kind of flops, to be honest. But one night, there's a special guest in the audience. By the name of Al Jolson. <laughs> Who's Al Jolson? So Our let me famous. tell you a little bit about Al Jolson. <laughs> What's that, Deb? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Al Jolson is by far one of the biggest names in film history and one of the biggest movie stars to ever exist. Um, and we'll probably never do an episode on this guy, ever. We, Why would we not we'll do probably an not, but if we want to We probably invite- won't. Some other people and some other friends on to maybe do a guest takeover. That That's maybe something. <laughs> Why would we not do an episode on it if he's so big? So Al Jolson was the Russian-born American actor who was the star of the very first talking picture. The oh, very wow. first talking. He was Russian. He was Russian-born. He was he was one of Putin's boys. No, <laughs> Putin, Putin was, was like a glimmer and some sperm at this point. <laughs> but 
<laughs> a glimmer in someone's sperm eye. <laughs> so Al Jolson was in the very, he was the star of the very first talking picture, The Jazz Singer. This is so insane that this is the very first talking picture. Wait, what? The it's, Jazz Singer was the first talking picture? Yes, in 1927. The Holy Jazz Singer shit. was the very first talking picture, and many of you might know about The Jazz Singer because it also had Al Jolson uh, doing his blackface bit. And he was known as the king of blackface. <laughs> um, at one point, this man, in the 1920s, he was the most famous and highest paid actor in the United States. He would even go on to be the very first star to entertain the troops during World War II. Holy shit. But yeah, nowadays did, he's more known as the king of blackface. Did he entertain the troops in blackface as well? Probably. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> probably. I mean, if that's like his most widely known character... It like, yeah. makes sense that he would tour with that. As... Wait, so did he do multiple movies in blackface or yeah. it was just a jazz singer? He did okay. multiple, but the but yeah. the jazz singer was so crazy to me. Like I said, this is the very first talking picture yeah. that we have in the United States. And it's a white dude wearing blackface and he's portraying like the struggle of Southern African-American people, basically. And it, Wait, what? That's what that movie was about? That's what it's about. It's so about... It, it, that sounds progressive so, except for the fact that that's you know. the thing that's the interesting part of it i mean like i said i don't ever really want to do an episode <laughs> on this so i'll get it out now but yeah they thought that they were doing like this groundbreaking progressive thing the general consensus was that it was uh like um represent represent representation like if so we can't like these people we, won't we, hire African Americans for their movies, so I'm a white dude. I can use my white privilege to get in the movie, and then I'll put on blackface and be representation. Fascinating yeah. take on that. It was a it was a fascinating like perspective. Huge blemish on American history. Absolutely a gigantic mistake. Was this uh, his idea, or did he get cast for it? That I don't know so much okay. to be honest. That is a good question. I I mean I would imagine is his idea. Um, he was the biggest movie star in the world at okay. the time. You know, so like this definitely wasn't a thing that he just had to do for his career. What what know? studio uh, was this? It was uh, Sunset Bronson Studios. Okay. Yeah. Does Sunset Bronson, does that, is that the thing that doesn't exist anymore? Do they change their name? Do they get absorbed into something uh, else? At some point, they became home. In 1950s, they became home to KTLA television. Yeah. And, yeah, it's still in use. It's still KTLA. So the Sunset – oh, yeah, the Sunset Bronson. Yeah, they're – Right near your house. Oh, basically. cool. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Not to dox you right now. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's fine. I live in Hollywood. They have a big plaque of Al Jolson and blackface on the front of the building. <laughs> Still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's a full <laughs> little reference to the uh, to the audience here. We actually record this podcast in Hollywood. Hollywood. Drake's streets in Hollywood are not paved with gold. They are paved with garbage. <laughs> Broken dreams and tears. <laughs> you can't even see the stars on the boardwalk anymore. They're all covered in tears and garbage. <laughs> the heroin needles and feces now. Does Al, does Al Jolson have a star? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I'm looking it up. He's got one out there. We'll go visit it and get a video of it. Yeah, Patreon <laughs> exclusive. Uh, I, uh, I am not uh, – so, like, you know, I'm not really a, uh, a fan of the idea of, like, taking stars off the boulevard ever. Like, right. I hope that doesn't really ever become a real topic of conversation just because it's, like – 
what that star is representing is their contributions to film or music, you know, or whatever their star is for. It's not being like, this was a good person. You know what I mean? For like, sure. I nobody. Mean, Michael Jackson, yeah. Elvis Presley. I mean, there's a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, a lot of stars on the boulevard if of you people took off, who did very bad. Things. Yeah. If you took off every star that, like, has, like, a, a, a dirty past, there'd be, like, three stars. Well, not to mention, those <laughs> stars Roman on the boulevard. Polanski? have a star oh i'm sure he's got I'm to absolutely positive he's got <laughs> one. and not to mention those stars on the boulevard those people pay for them oh know? really yeah yeah oh you buy those. really yeah yeah it's like ten thousand <laughs> bucks i mean no, you, have you, to, you, you have to you have to meet requirements okay. yeah you have to be approved for it but there's you also a board pay for it. okay like the city of hollywood right yeah, yeah. and then that board uh, an association with the academy i think votes to determine if you're allowed because kevin and kevin smith just got a star so i think he had to go through all oh, of this wow. and he talked about right. it not just but like a year ago or whatever yeah 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 oh there was there was just a star ceremony like a couple days ago like literally like la reopened because we're recording this post the 15th when la reopened mm. like it was literally like night and day like i wonder bef- if it was kevin kevin smith's no um, his was before the yeah. pandemic uh, yeah, like I don't know if they were doing them during the pandemic because right. obviously like no. social distancing and stuff. Yeah. And then literally like the like the week that LA reopened, there was a red carpet premiere at the Chinese theater. So yeah. I was like, oh, we're just back. We're just back to this now. Back, Which is you know I'm ha- happy to be back. But That's you know great. it was just it was like a light switch though. It was like literally we were off and now we're on. There yeah. wasn't kind of like a slow ramp up. Oh no, yeah, it opened right back yeah. up. Al Jolson's in the crowd one night watching James Cagney and John Blondell tear up the stage in Penny Arcade. Like I said, the play was flopping, uh, but Al thinks to himself, this could be a picture. This could be a moving picture. Those things that I do in blackface. <laughs> so he bought the rights. Is he in blackface of the crowd? Yeah, he's in blackface. Oh <laughs> <laughs> Nobody recognizes him in the real world unless he's in blackface. So like... <laughs> yeah, they thought he was a black actor. Actually. They didn't even know God. he was white at the time. Yeah, he never took so it off. <laughs> I just want to paint a picture that we went from Al Jolson way back then, and then not too long ago, Tropic Thunder. Yeah. And then now you could not do Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Yeah. Man, really. I, Tropic Thunder coming out in like 07 was like the perfect time to do that. Yeah. But also, like, the whole point of it was they were making fun of like That's Hollywood. Nice. Like, it was supposed to be a commentary. I think it so. should always be yeah. within the boundaries to make fun of something that was yeah. terrible. Like, I mean, yeah. uh, uh, Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. You know? Exactly. I mean, yeah. yeah definitely... You made a comedy about Hitler. Yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. Like, um, if you're making fun of it, I think go ahead for sure. God. And I, I, I want to go on record. I love that. I think this yeah. is one oh, of the best sure. comedies ever. But, yeah. but that I, being said, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. had some cojones balls to, to do, do that. that yeah. Role. yeah, yeah. Um, that that was <laughs> yeah. That must have been a big decision on his part. Of like, should, uh, this is everyone not... should go listen to Jamie Foxx's yeah. explanation of that on Rogan. Yeah. He, Rogan asked him. He was like, "What about fucking Robert Downey doing Blackface?" And Jamie was like, "You know, he called he called me up and he goes." Uh, listen, dude. Um, you know, I got a, I got a question for you. And he asked him if it was okay. And Jamie was like, "No, nah, man, you're my guy. Of course, it was all. You know, I trust you with this." And you mm-hmm. know, it was, it's it's good. cool. Sure. That, it's it's cool that he asked for for a second opinion first. He we like. I think yeah. he asked like, for several, has... but you yeah, know. you know, and also like the actor, it just worked out. Like it was Robert Downey Jr. Had it been Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> you no, know, sure. Yeah, no it, it helped. Yeah. That it was like like a great actor, right? Like, like an, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah um, yeah. 
But also, uh, yeah, I want to go on record saying Tropic Thunder is one of the best movies of Absolutely. all time. I, yes. I like. I don't <laughs> like. I don't know who won Best Actor for like that, that 2007. Year. It should have been Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. And honestly, that movie should have been up for Best Picture. Like, sure. They never give comedies a shine, but. Tropic Thunder is a fucking masterpiece. Oh, yeah, it is. It absolutely <laughs> is. It was Ben Stiller's, like, height. Yeah. Great I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Best Picture is a bit of a stretch. I don't know what else came out in 2007. No, no, no. But... I agree. That was, <laughs> it was amazing. Incredible. I yeah. think it's my favorite comedy ever. Yeah. So so Al Jolson buys the rights to this play for $20,000 in 1930, which uh, will run it through the old inflation calculation here. Uh, and that comes out to $317,000. Uh, so... It wasn't for for buying a whole play. Uh, it's it was about right. So we, so we bought. That's pretty so that's on how much, par. That's yeah. how much it cost to buy the rights to it. Yeah. Okay. He bought the rights to it for okay. modern day money, three hundred seventeen grand. That sounds right. Yeah. 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 So old minstrel show Al really loved the play. He pitched it to Warner Brothers with the stipulation that James Cagney and Joan Blondell reprised their supporting roles as Harry Delano and Myrtle in the film version. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I thought that was cool, too. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's one of those things where, again, I always say this, this isn't the first time it happened, but mm-hmm. it was one of the first times this would happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was one of the first times where they would adapt a play to a film using some of the original cast. And they went on to do this a lot. I love, we'll do a whole episode on the Dead End Kids, but that was a huge deal with, they took this play called Dead End right off of Broadway into Warner Brothers, filmed it with Humphrey Bogart, and it was it came out as this dead end with the dead end kids who were in the play. <laughs> oh, sweet! Yeah, it was cool. amazing. Yeah. Wait, well, so... so from a production standpoint, you guys got to think about this. I want to do a whole episode on movie musicals because, like, musicals mm-hmm. is my you know past uh, you know experience and stuff, teaching it and whatnot. So when you're thinking about, let's say, a musical instead of a play, you got so much more in rehearsals and learning music. It's way more than just learning lines. That's time right. of training for those actors. So you're saving money by just transferring them from the live show to yeah, the Yeah, they're masters. They're masters yeah. at yeah. it. Right. They can yeah. literally be on set and within a day or two, you could be filming. They're memorized. You could be getting they're off absolutely, book. Yeah. You could be getting final yeah. footage within a day or two with yeah. these people. Yeah. And, um, now, how did Cag- was Cagney excited about moving into pictures? Did he think it was kind of like uh, it was just like ah, I'll do it because it's paid, but I'm not really into it? Like how how interested in film acting was he at this time? I don't know if Cagney ever. I don't know if he knew the word excited. <laughs> I don't think he ever smiled or laughed even, unless he was like paid to do it. But uh, but actually, that's a good question because no, he was not uh, <laughs> at the time. <laughs> at the time. He, I think he, along with a lot of other actors, saw this. This was talking film, and I know we've made this this like kind of correlation before, but you know, this would be like going to YouTube or something. It'd be like this like new like young thing to go do. He kind of pursued acting in film um, because I'll, I'll get into it. But he and his wife both went to L.A to go see if they could make it on some of these new talkies that were coming out. Mm. And it was this thing of like, can we get into the circus? Yeah. It was uh, like, you're, you're, it was like, yeah. Can we get into the circus? Yeah. Like, can we get into this new weird thing? (laughs) They literally worked at a circus kind of like (laughs) vaudeville is basically a circus. Yeah, exactly. That's, it's so interesting that that's, that's the scene is like a a higher class of art than film, you know, with the the modern perspective of such. 
Yeah, um, so, but Warner Brothers bought the play from Al Jolson, and I'm sure he took, he made a shit ton of money off of this, and I think he, like, bought a bunch of shoe polish for his face or whatever, <laughs> but they retitled the film Sinner's Holiday, starring Grant Withers and the lovely and talented Evelyn Knapp. Uh, it was a very cool movie. I highly recommend it. It's got all, like, 1930s Coney Island. Wait, 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 uh, Cagney didn't? I thought you said Cagney they weren't himself. starring. They were playing oh, supporting roles. Okay, right. Cagney right, right. is uh, yeah. one of the yeah. Cagney and John Blondell were playing like, but that's the funny part, and this goes all the mm. way back to even now in 1930. Mm. You know, it's that age-old adage where you get that supporting role, but it's the mm. coolest role in the movie. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah it's yeah. that Christian Bale and the fighter effect. Yeah. Where yeah, like yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's what everybody was there to watch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That launched him. Playing this role launched mm-hmm. him in this film. It was cool. everybody started paying attention to him after this, but um, it was the first of many roles that he'd play where he was the sympathetic anti-hero, caught up in a world of crime due to his upbringing. And this was throughout Cagney's career. This was kind of the characters that he would play. It was always sort of a warning tale. He would play like this gangster who broke bad when he was a kid. And now he's he's he reaped the benefits from it very shortly, and now he is facing the consequences of his actions. He did a lot of movies like that. Mm. I think Warner Brothers was on this big mafia film kick in the 1930s. They were the mob yeah. studio. And I almost wonder if it was a thing for sponsors that they had to kind of start saying that the message was to not do this. <laughs> you know, like... Especially in the 1930s, I mean, mm. it was so ripe with people's kids joining the mafia all over the place, <laughs> and now they're putting out all these movies that makes it look cool as shit. Right. Yeah, that might have only been a law that like you have to show that crime doesn't pay. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I comics had like a similar kind of law for a while where like you had to like you can only show these things if they met the certain criteria and things yeah. like that. So yeah, I um, see. Yeah, because like in uh, in Public Enemy in the 1930s, the movie that comes out. It ends with uh, spoiler alert for Public Enemy. By the way, it's only for... almost a hundred years old. Yeah. <laughs> spoiler alert! I'm so sorry if you haven't seen this yet. Go watch it. But uh, it ends with him being kidnapped and killed by the mob. And you remember the scene? His body is propped up at the front door, and his family thinks he's like home. They're like, "Oh, our boy is mm-hmm. home. Let's make some like you know spaghetti and shit for his return." Mm-hmm. And they open the door, and he's just standing there like dead, and he just falls over dead in the doorway. And that's how it ends. Mm-hmm. It's like the end. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. before the movie, and the before Public Enemy, they have this. There's a whole forward by Warner Brothers. And I'm going to read it to you right now. It is the ambition of the authors of The Public Enemy to honestly depict an environment that exists today in a certain strata of American life. Rather than glorify the hoodlum or the criminal, while the story of The Public Enemy is essentially a true story, all names and characters appearing herein are purely fictional. And the end credits started with like a bookend of the message. The end of Tom Powers is the end of every hoodlum. The public enemy is not a man, nor is it a character. It is a problem that sooner or later we, the public, must solve. Interesting. Yeah. A so lot the whole of movies, movies kind of like a PSA. That were controversial, yeah. Yeah. or a lot of movies that were gamed at being almost propaganda y gave that disclaimer or a very similer one. Like Reefer mm-hmm. Madness begins the same way. 
It's oh, like the right. characters and yeah. events the in this picture are, yeah, yeah, and it's it's basically yeah. like we don't want you to be confused, so we're gonna spell it out, <laughs> and then you're gonna be entertained. Yeah, this, this, uh, the subtext has go right out the window. One day on Patreon, we'll release our original episode of Reefer Madness from back in the day, but also oh, we'll have cool. to redo that one as well with the yeah. three of us for sure. Cool. Cagney also, and this was uh, right in that that thing that we're talking about here he did a movie called jimmy the gent and jimmy burke the extremely violent real life mobster played by robert de niro and goodfellas uh he took on that nickname jimmy the gent because of james cagney <laughs> but oh wow what yeah but, but james cagney played this character jimmy the gent and it was again it was supposed to be this like warning message oh. to not join the mafia and he has real life mobsters later on who are extremely dangerous, like inspired by those animals. Yeah. That's also weird to think of. I mean, obviously that makes sense. He was this was the thirties, but like the weird to think of time like that. Yeah. That like they grew like wow, so they so all the all the mobsters that we talk about today, like were they came after this Absolutely. stuff, right? Yeah. This was right after the nineteen twenties, uh the mob they were all known as the Prohibition era That's, uh yeah. Capone, uh, yeah. Lucky Luciano, the yeah. commission was formed. That's like, that whole yeah. thing. The big daddy mafia yeah. guys. But then everything, like you know, uh, when Prohibition took... ended, it was like uh, it was like uh, uh, an AD mm-hmm. of the mob, basically, where all the guys who came after the Prohibition were there were some big mobsters that came, mm-hmm. no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But it never was quite like the 1920s. Yeah, right. You know? yeah. And I mean, these but, guys were getting all like, those Scorsese movies, like Irishman and Goodfellas and stuff. That's all like way 50, past. 60, yeah, that's 70, crazy 70s, to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's crazy 50, to think 60s. about. Like Jimmy the Gent. Uh, Robert De Niro's character that was 50s you know yeah. Henry Hill and Jimmy the Gent and all those guys that was 50s 60s um, but again you know the, they all started when they were kids as well right. yeah <laughs> but yeah but it, it, but still I mean James Cagney was not only alive he was still very recently doing films before did, Henry Hill came along yeah did he ever did they ever ask him in interviews like uh, you know or how do you feel about like these gangsters like being clearly being inspired by your work not really i don't know if i don't know i haven't heard I mean, him. it's not his fault but like no you know, for it's, sure it's interesting yeah. to say i wonder if he ever like well uh, he did say these roles or he did say at one point you know i mean i'll get into it later on in the episode but the first time he leaves hollywood he says he's sick of women being hit in films and he's sick of shooting at people mm-hmm. he's like he's basically yeah. sick of being the guy who just shoots at people and hits women, yeah, and everyone cheers for him every time he does it, right? You know, it yeah. became like a real soul suck for him. Yeah, I, I imagine that yeah. makes sense. So Jimmy's filming Sinner's Holiday with Joan Blondell and Jack Warner, head of Warner Brothers, loves Jimmy, but doesn't see the chemistry with Joan Blondell that everybody else saw, and eventually everybody would see it. At the time, of course, Jack Warner doesn't see it, so he kind of just wants Jimmy. And I have I have a theory as to what, maybe why he didn't see their chemistry because James Cagney had this thing where if he ever had to do a scene with a woman, uh, in order to like honor his wife, he would eat a bunch of anchovies and stuff to have really bad breath. But what? <laughs> and, yeah, he would do things where like if he had to kiss a lady on screen, he would make sure his breath was like really bad or something. That's like so what? rude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. It was like it was supposed to be like, you know, this sweet thing and and people talk about it like a sweet thing he did for his wife. And it was How? like, well, it, it wasn't very sweet for his scene partner. Yeah, and also right. like what so like 
just to make sure that she doesn't enjoy it because if right, she enjoys it, right. that's cheating somehow. Yeah. Like, also, it's you like still have to do not with professional. <laughs> no, yeah. not professional at all. Also, like, I don't know. What if she was already pretty uncomfortable with kissing in that scene in the first place yeah. anyway? You know, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't right? exactly a great time to be kissing people on scene as a, <laughs> as a woman. Yeah, but, uh, that's that's uh, that seems like just mean. <laughs> yeah, but Jack Warner liked Cagney enough uh, where he this is where this first contract comes in. So he goes to James Cagney. Um, I think I think like two or three weeks into filming Sinner's Holiday, Jack Warner came to Cagney, and Cagney signed a five hundred dollar a week three week contract with Warner Brothers as kind of like a probationary thing. It was a three week contract. Interesting. You can shoot a movie in three weeks back then. Uh, no, no, that's the thing. I mean, he would still be doing this movie probably. Well, actually, no, they probably would be wrapping up in about three weeks because it was about a month to shoot a movie. Really? So, yeah. So they, I thought it would take longer back then just because, like, equipment and stuff. Oh, was, no. Like, they would whiff these things really? out. It was, well, like, usually a month and done. Rules. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, we don't rule 15 hours today. You're fucked. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> Listen, you're not going to sleep. I'm going to put bad fish breath in your mouth. I'm going to slap <laughs> you and then shoot at you with real bullets. <laughs> were there like constantly massive like fatal accidents because people are like way too tired to be doing their jobs oh yeah people died making movies <laughs> people died making movies in these times uh, yeah and you'll hear in some of the later episodes you know like like we talked about wings mm-hmm. later on and oh yeah there were deaths on set was it was it, quite a time <laughs> was it kind of one of those things where it's like Obviously, it's always a tragedy, but like, you know, like I assume a lot of people died off building skyscrapers because it's falling, but that was kind of like you just kind of expected it. You're yeah. just like, well, if I get this job, I might die. And, you know, yeah. Oh, did you hear Joe fell off the building yesterday? Ah, damn. I like Joe, but same, same with same with happen. doing stunts. Same yeah. with doing stunts. Was it kind of like the same way where it's like you know this is a dangerous job, and part like, of the it's job. Super shocking if, if like there's a an accident or right. something. No, okay. you kept rolling. I mean, if there was a dude that there would be people that died on set, and they would just be like, "Well, we're not missing the next scene." Oh, you know, like get <laughs> them off humans set. Humans have humans have died <laughs> for the entertainment of other humans for centuries. Very like, true. Think of the Colosseum. Are you not yeah. entertained? Like we're yeah. fucking heathens, guys. <laughs> Damn right. Yes. Yeah. Cagney, and this was right off the bat as well. Uh, it's, he's he's on his very first movie set, and he already gets this reputation for being very stubborn. Um, he would argue the John Adolphe, the the director. He was already arguing with the director. But that was one of the reasons Jack Warner liked him so much. Jack Warner apparently came to set and was like, oh, I like this guy's moxie, see? <laughs> and he gave him this contract. And so he, he enjoyed uh, that James was arguing with the director. And never thought maybe I'll maybe he's gonna argue with yeah, the at some point. And this is gonna be annoying. At some point he's gonna turn that on to me, and he very <laughs> much did. Yeah, according to Celador Cagney himself, he said there was a line in the show where I was supposed to be crying on my mother's breast. The line was, "I'm your baby, ain't I?" I refused to say it. Adolfi said, "I'm gonna go tell Zanuck," which Zanuck was Daryl Zanuck, the like biggest producer in the world at okay. the time. He said, I'm going to go tell Zanuck. I said, I don't give a shit what you tell him. I'm not saying that fucking line. <laughs> <laughs> so that was his very first movie role, you know. But you got to think. I mean, this guy's yeah. been 10 years in the game already. He was on Broadway. Yeah. He's, he has been, especially vaudeville, imagine how ruthless vaudeville was. Listen, you know? When you grew up 
tap dancing and boxing. Yeah. You're yeah. cut from a different cloth. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so this argument about that one particular line that he didn't want to say, they took the line out and extended Cagney's contract for three more weeks <laughs> after that. So when that three weeks was up, uh, they were sold on Cagney. The CAG is going to stay here at, at, at old Warner Brothers. Um, so they offered him a seven-year, $400-a-week contract with only every six months guaranteed. So every six months, you're going to be up for review. I see. Um, and we can we can end this contract anytime we want, basically, but you can't. You can't end this contract. Uh, that was what the contract said. Unless and, he does something to make them want to end it. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, it was $400 a week doesn't sound like a lot, but you do the old calculations here. Um, that's, grand, right? It's six grand a week. Okay. Yeah. That's but that's not bad. Twenty-five grand a month. Two hundred eighty-eight thousand dollars a year to do movies with Warner Brothers for seven years. For seven years. Was there not a clause in there for a renegotiation? Not for that's him. That's a long time to be locked into that amount of money. And I did like actors back then still made millions, right? Like yeah. some of them did, or didn't? It was that unheard of. No, uh, no, no, no. The actors made millions back then. Yeah, there were some so actors like, in the lock, 20s who made... an actor for seven years to not even half a million dollars a year. Yeah, like, seems a 10-year like, vet of Broadway. Yeah, seems like a little ridiculous. Right. Um, uh, d- did, uh, did he find a way to renegotiate? Uh, well, he did time? later on. He did later on. <laughs> uh, before the 70 years this, were up? Th- this episode, too, should be called uh, James Cagney's War with Warner Brothers. <laughs> like, this becomes... Okay. This, beca- this leads to multiple walkouts. James Cagney <laughs> was the king of walking out of Warner Brothers. <laughs> like, he was the beginning of the end of these brutal studio contracts, basically. But wow. He did a lot for this. Wild. But, uh, but yeah, that's sick. So Jack I guess, Warner didn't stay a fan for long. Right. No, no, no. Jack <laughs> Warner was definitely not a fan for very long. <laughs> yeah, and that six months thing, apparently they did that. Every six months we're going to renew you. And, you know, that was supposed to be incentive for you to basically stay in line and keep up the good work, you know, and don't go against the studio and anything. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it was kind of like a, 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 the, an anti renegotiation. Yeah. Like, it's if, like it, if you start trying to renegotiate, we can just drop you. Yeah, for exactly. sure. You got six months. Uh, yeah. Especially yeah. like three months into this thing, the next three months, you better make damn sure that they want to renew. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, but this, they had a problem with him right off the bat because his next role was this gangster film called the doorway to hell. And this thing blew up. This was a huge box office success. And he overnight became a recognizable movie star. Like he became like a household name instantly. Shit. Yeah. And yeah, shit. That's what Jack <laughs> Warner said. <laughs> Like, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh shit that's good yeah everybody, everybody's yelling his name in the streets and jack warner's still like you're only worth 400 a week to me kid you know <laughs> and warner brothers they were on like i said they were on this huge gangster movie streak they did um uh, one of the we'll, we'll absolutely do an episode on this guy later on the king of gangster films in the 30s was edward g robinson he made it big on little caesar 
and the, the pizza company yeah 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 i made it big on some pizza he's just like shooting pepperonis at people from a thompson <laughs> I'll, that sounds I'll pump, much better than bullets that's very true i'd rather that i'll puppy you full of mozzarella <laughs> but yeah edward g robinson started this i say he started this thing where it was like mafia films were like dc movies at warner brothers at the time you know there were the house of the mafia films and uh, he did, James Cagney did another movie in 1931 called Other Men's Women. And then his next one that same year, which was the big one, Public Enemy, in 1931. So, like I said, I mean, this guy is just, he's going. He's, he hit the ground running, still under this contract that absolutely would prove to not pay him enough immediately. <laughs> did w- w- So how long did it take him for him to start being like, Let's talk about this 400 a week thing. It, it took a while. It took okay. longer three than you pictures. would think. Oh. Yeah, three movies, exactly. It took, and for Public Enemy as well, for anybody who's a fan of Public Enemy, uh, James Cagney was originally cast as the nice guy, Matt Doyle, and Edward Woods was originally supposed to play his character, Tom Powers. But they were three days into filming, and the director, William Bellman, uh, he turned to Cagney and literally said... You're the star now. That was the words he used, and he switched their roles. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Just right there on set, three days into filming. Probably, like, took the scripts out of both their hands, <laughs> swapped them, and was like, go back to your trailer and memorize these lines instead. <laughs> Knowing James Cagney, he had already memorized them. So you at least still got a trailer back then. They didn't just send you over to some folding chairs. Yeah, or like a sewage pit or something. <laughs> go back to your cage. They had, like, a guy come out with, like, a cattle prod, get you back in there. <laughs> memorize your lines. And they'd shoot at you, at your feet. Yeah. Wait, this is a dumb question. Were there air conditioning back then? Probably not in the studio. No, there's no way that there was air conditioned like stages. No, in like the trailers. No, 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 no. Air condition was not invented until like the 50s. Neither was refrigeration. For real? Let's look. It's compression. What the fuck? Do you not know how refrigerator AC works? (laughs) We have electricity by this point. Was there AC in a Model T Ford? I don't know. No, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm letting this this conversation continue. We've had we've had electricity since like what like wait what was electricity? Go ahead. No, it was electricity. But that was the 1800s. But that was like the industrial that was yeah, part yeah, of the yeah, industrial yeah. revolution. You got it. You got it. It was really. I was hoping you would say like 1972. <laughs> Technically, electricity's always existed, but you know. Yeah, there you go. Tesla found it. <laughs> he just uh, found it. Yeah, Elon, 1893. Elon, yeah, it was in 1893. Elon so, Musk discovered electricity. So if there's electricity, then why then are there not air conditioners or refrigerators? I mean, they're shooting live ammo at these people. <laughs> Giving them air conditioners sounds <laughs> sounds like a luxury that they're just not gonna they're not gonna go for. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of, I mean, I could be wrong and we could research this more, but I don't think the technology for that compression was nah. invented until like after World War II. They did because not have none of the trailers. Yeah. Air conditioner the, was invented in 1902. <laughs> we had it. All right. Yeah, we had it. Right. So I'm totally wrong. <laughs> Here. Not, not in, a, in a star wagon, I guarantee you. <laughs> 
So the actors are just There's like no high sh- shit, sweating through their uh, oh, like costumes and stuff. I'm sure. I'm sure. That yeah, but it's like... California's. Yeah, and plus it's in black and white. They can't really see your pit stains all that much, you know. But yeah, this is also the time where people wore suits every fucking where they went. Like <laughs> people true. were in just full suits in the middle of July, you know, like wool suits too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if people just and that's I guess they were all very thin people probably because they sweat out ten pounds a day and <laughs> it their was the Great Depression. Nobody had fucking food. Yeah, to eat. no one had food. <laughs> like, well, and also refrigerators were invented in eighteen ninety nine. So they <laughs> really? absolutely, they, yeah, they absolutely had access to all this stuff. <laughs> we'll cut this whole thing. <laughs> no, 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 no. We should, we no, should, no, because no. some of the time I'm full of shit and I yeah. talk out my ass. Uh, this is one of those. I'm I just usually the wrong one. So I want, I want to. I wanted to step yeah. back and let it all happen. <laughs> I was letting I the just, art live. I made, a, I made a gross assumption, and I just assumed. That, you know, Sometimes you just have to a- let the art breathe, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the movie Public Enemy at the time it only cost 150 grand to make, and it was the first low budget film to make one million dollars. One million dollars. I was I found what I was thinking about. Freezers were invented later, but refrigerators were predated then. Why was why are freezers so much harder? One million in nineteen thirty one was nowadays seventeen million. Wow. So this was the it made bank. I mean, especially cool. considering the hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget, you make a million dollars back. Wow. And oh, this shit. is yeah, this is one of the reasons where this is one of the reasons why Cagney became so big so fast. It was mm. just these gigantic movies and yeah. it it happens. Yeah. Uh this is also the film though where Cagney this is where he begins to get a little weary of how the studios work. <laughs> Because he, he, this is where he learns that the studios just don't like to spend money on blanks and squibs and all that shit, you know, because it, it clearly they're making money. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that they can't afford yeah. it. Uh, they yeah, just yeah. want to see you have real life shootouts with some of the dudes on set. It's better for the acting. It's yeah. better for the acting, for sure, for sure. Think if it's real. <laughs> it's method. Stan Zosky. Think if it's real. <coughs> oh, no. Drake's dying. You can't fake it if it's real. Yeah, see. Oh, by the way, if you want to see a more recent film with live ammo, there was one in 1985 where they that's, used live that's ammo. Too, that's too slow. It not, was Russia. Ago. Yeah. It was Russia. Oh, they made it. Of course. There, there's this Russian movie called Come and See, mm-hmm. and they just straight up like shoot at teenagers Holy in shit. this movie. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, because I mean, that was, that was a long time ago, but not long enough ago. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And, so uh, that was right before the collapse. That was a few years. Uh, it collapsed. The Soviet Union collapsed in like oh, 1990 yeah. or 91. It was because of that. So like, they're like, we got all this ammo. We're not going to use it. Let's just fucking <laughs> shoot people. Yeah, they would have never done that after the collapse. They got to save that precious ammo. <laughs> Public selling Enemy. it on the black market. <laughs> Go ahead. Public Enemy was also the movie where the famous grapes, grapefruit scene came from. Uh, this was a different grapefruit scene that, you know, Dev had to do back in the day for <laughs> rent money. But uh, <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> shit. <laughs> Last week, struggle is real. It's a pandemic, bro. Uh, give me, give me the hookup for that. I, I need yeah. some extra income. This part of public enemy. This part of public enemy is one of those. It's another one where like, it, Jimmy's character Tom Powers walks into the kitchen in his pajamas for some breakfast with May Clark, and he's just a real dick. Like his character is a horrible human being. He's all hungover. 
He's tired from murdering people all night as a <laughs> as a mobster. You know, he didn't want to hear anything that May's got to say this morning. Sorry, murdering people. <laughs> and I want to play the audio from this scene just to give you context of what's going on. Ain't you got a drink in the house? Well, not before breakfast, dear. I didn't ask you for any lip. I asked you if you had a drink. I know, Tom, but... Well, gee, I, I wish... The... Hey, you go down wishing stuff again. I wish you was a wishing well. That I could tie a bucket to you and sink you. Maybe you found someone you like better. And the scene ends with Cagney slamming a grapefruit into Mae Clark's face. Hard. Like, really hard. And it was called one of the most famous scenes in film history, the history of film, <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> um. <laughs> and many, many believed it to be one of the big contributors to the new trend at the time of leading men physically striking women. They, they thought this was uh, definitely uh, a big... This was definitely a big contribution to that. Well, but why was this a trend? So this this started as a trend in the early 1930s. I mean, I'm sure men were hitting plenty of women in the 1920s <laughs> in those movies as well. But this is where you could actually start to hear the slap when the hand hit the face. You know, <laughs> talking. <laughs> it's a much more enriching. One of the great the contributions of sound for film. Wow, I can really hear the, the slap. slap of the hand on the face. It oh. was in all the reviews. You can really hear the slap when Clark Gable's hand connects. Because that was three months after this film, Clark Gable had a film called Night Nurse, where he closed fist punched Barbara Stanwyck's nurse character, knocking her out cold knocking her unconscious in, re in real life did she get knocked no, out no he didn't okay. actually hit her but like yeah. just the fact i mean i say that i <laughs> listen <laughs> listen there were a lot of hits that did connect back in these times so don't listen to me i yeah. don't know all i know is that his character in the movie knocked a fucking nurse out cold and everybody was like that's a leading man <laughs> yeah wait, so they're not the villain in the movie no not at all as a matter of fact this was an up tick in the 1930s if you they they uh somebody i think it was i have it somewhere in here but i think it was edward g robinson or someone who told james cagney if you're hitting a bunch of women in the movies they're casting you as that is a sign that you are like an up a handsome leading man <laughs> Like, that means they want you to be, like, a movie star. Like, the more women you hit per scene, the better your career is doing, basically. The, the funny irony behind all of this is that they were like, no, 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 we have to make sure we give a disclaimer about gangsters right. Right before and after the movie. But in the middle, we could just punch women and, right. you know, shoot bullets at people. It's whatever, you know. It's fine. Yeah. Um, wait, wait, so, but, yeah, the, the grapefruit scene, um, did you say that wasn't originally in the script? So, the origin of the scene is highly debated. Uh, Daryl Zanuck, the producer, he claimed he came up with it in a writing session. The director claimed he came up with the scene when he saw grapefruit on the table <laughs> as a prop, which I seriously doubt that. Mae Clark herself said that Cagney came up with it. And she and Cagney developed it as kind of like a bit that they agreed to without telling anyone. And that they were, sounds like that's the story they told her to say. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. She was Does, like, we were just fooling It was my people. idea. I swear. <laughs> Does Cagney I ran into a doorknob. What does Cagney break? claim? <laughs> 
Cagney claims it was the writers. Okay. <laughs> Cagney said the writers came up with that. And he, I didn't even want to do it. You know, like <laughs> there's a lot of people trying to take credit for smacking a woman. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of smacking a woman. So Cagney films the public enemy and then Warner Brothers contracted him to film the inevitable co-starring role with Edward G. Robinson. They want to put their two mob heavy hitters together in a movie. Top two woman slappers. Top two woman slappers <laughs> in the world come together for this movie. It's like if Robert De Niro and Al Pacino hit women every movie they did, this is what you got. This is the Irishman of slapping women. And this this movie also has a scene with violence against a woman. This time he's slapping his co-star and star of his first film, Evelyn Knapp. She was in the Penny Arcade movie, and now he's right. slapping the shit out of her. He's this big star. She's so proud of him, you know? She's like, look at this. You're slapping me. Look. <laughs> Be like slapping your mentor. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. You know, like oh, James, look how far we've come. Look how far. Now you're slapping me. <laughs> wait. At least wait until the cameras are rolling, Jimmy. Jesus. <laughs> I got to practice, see? <laughs> and, and it was. I'm going to fish breath. <laughs> oh my God. Seriously. He's slapping you. He's fucking fish breath. It's like, this is the star of Warner Brothers. <laughs> and it was. It was Edward G. Robinson that said basically, if Warner was making you slap this many women around, you are becoming a movie star for sure. So, <laughs> Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers finally got a little bit of heat for all this violence from the brand new Motion Picture Production Code drafted in 1930. Uh, they booked Cagney on a movie with John Blondell called Blonde Crazy and basically telling Warner Brothers, like, don't have him hit her in this movie. Just this one. We got to figure out this slapping women thing. Give his hand a rest for one whole movie. And we'll see if we can continue slapping women after this is over. But right now, <laughs> we'll, get him to, we'll get him back. We'll get that hand working ASAP. In the meantime, they set him up with a dummy in his trailer. That way right. he can keep his technique down. You got to yeah. keep your shoulder warm, kid. <laughs> He's like chasing chickens around like Rocky. <laughs> keeping warm uh public yeah so public enemy and blonde crazy come out in 1931 both gangbusters selling out night showings every single night all night these movies would play and J yeah jimmy i mean he's, he's a movie star mm -hmm. cue the entourage intro music, dun, dun, bam, you know. bam. So, yeah, so James Cagney's becoming this huge fucking movie star, and just like in the second episode of the third season of Entourage, called One Night in the Valley, where Vinny goes out to the valley to see his own movie, mm -hmm. James Cagney started popping into a few of his the theaters that were showing his movie, and he's noticing... The lines around the block, he's noticing the, the theaters are fill, filled. Literally, people are waiting outside for people inside to finish their screening to come out so they can go in, you know. And he's just, he is seeing how big of a movie star he is, and he starts to kind of wonder how underpaid he is at this point. Um, he went to Warner Brothers, saying that his salary should be adjusted based on the success of his films. And Warner Brother basically said, kick fucking rocks. We're not doing that. The contract is exactly what we said it was when you signed it. 
it's not changing. And this is know? like what, barely a year in? This is barely mm-hmm. a year in. Yeah. yeah. And I, God, that's the thing. I mean, it it goes both ways, right? No. Because he did just sign a contract. Ooh, no, no, no. I'm I'm signing with Cagney on this no, one. I'm, I'm just saying this him. is so crazy that in the first year yeah. he's already at the point where it's like, listen, fuckers. He was just instantly a star. Like, yeah, that's that's wild. I I don't know if they're. I, because movies take longer to film now, so you can't be in as many movies. Like right. I, I don't know if there's a modern example of someone who went from zero to a hundred in like a year, like right. a year. Right. Like that's wild. Well, and like, then not only uh, did they refuse to give him a raise of any sort, they also told him that as one of the faces of the studio, he was contracted to promote other Warner Brothers projects that he wasn't even in. Mm. So when you sign these contracts. You're a Warner Brothers face, and everything that they make, you go to the premieres, you do press for all the other stuff too. Are those? Is it, is that, do you think those are still in contracts? Yeah, I'm sure. Like, do you think like the Marvel guys are like contractually obligated to go to all the premieres I'm and sure. stuff? I'm sure, mm-hmm. absolutely. So just like in Entourage season five, episode twelve, <laughs> called "Return to Queens Boulevard." James Cagney said, fuck you to the studio and return to New York to get away from the biz for a bit. How How do you know these exact episodes? Have you seen, this, have you seen that show so many times you just know? I've watched, I've watched Entourage a few times. And when I was doing my research, I was like, you know what? That's exactly what happened. <laughs> and he leaves. He goes back to New York. He does not want any part of this. Uh, if you're not giving me a raise, I'm going to sit here and make all this money for you and be this huge movie star and not get paid the way I want to. I'm going home. He left his brother Harry in charge of his apartment while he was gone. And... He left Harry a letter that said, I'm sick of guns and beating up women. <laughs> Movies should be entertaining, not bloodbaths. Yeah. That's cool. So yeah. That's cool that, that he like saw like that was it fucked up you know, a little yeah. bit. Like, and he wants to you know, just make movies about something else. But also, uh, could they not sue him? Could they not take him to jail? Like, is, is he allowed? I mean, you know, he's not allowed to do this. But also, like, is there anything that Warner Brothers can actually do? Well, yeah, absolutely. They could sue him, but Warner Brothers, from their point of view, this is their biggest star mm-hmm. that they have this year. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe not their biggest. Some mm-hmm. could probably argue you know, that there were some mm-hmm. bigger ones on the roster. But this is their big, hot, new guy. Public yeah. Enemy, Blonde Crazy. These were two mm-hmm. of the biggest films of the year. This guy's making serious bank. So... I think it was one of those negotiation things where, like, we're not going to cut him, mm-hmm. but we're also – we need to figure this out. Yeah. Um, he he left Harry as uh, – basically back in L.A. to take care of his apartment, but also as his agent, kind of his, like, interim okay. agent to talk to Warner Brothers to reconsider yeah. their terms. Um, where's his wife and all this? This is, there is no word on Francis during this time, really. He makes an entire move back to New York City, and I can't find anywhere mentioning her coming with him. And at least not on anything I've been able to dig up. And I'd be very interested to know how she felt about all this. Well, she also, she was an actress as well. She was Um, an actress. Did did she never get a movie career? Like. I have I have not found out what happened to her acting career. I don't know what happened to her. Uh, there's de- there's definitely details left out from just making this like a six parter, you know. <laughs> but also, there's just not a there's not a lot on his wife. 
but what if it's like uh, something where she was like a member of the National Socialist German Party and like <laughs> Cagney just like scrubbed all the records of it afterward? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this period in her life just didn't happen. That's yeah, all. <laughs> yeah. But he did a movie about literally his life. A guy who gets plucked from doing Broadway to go to L.A. to become like a big time actor and stuff. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, they actually address that he's married. He has a wife. What are we going to do with your wife? We can't tell people that you're married. Because we want the women to come buy the tickets and oh, that's right. more attractive. They like hid her away. Yeah. Yes, the studios. The studio just would to make him more appealing. Yeah. As yeah. A star. In the movie, the studio bought him an extra apartment to put his wife in and act like she was his secretary. Whoa. Basically, Hilarious. and interesting. I think that might be what really happened. Yeah, that you that know? sounds like it must be. Um, and like I, be, I guess was she, but was she kind of forced to give up? Uh, a career of her probably own. i'm sure yeah. i'm sure they urged her to not try to be an actor as well it's I'm... not gonna look good if she becomes famous too and right. then they are married and right the cats out the bag yeah uh, you want famous people to to get together and marry each other later but right. you don't want for people who are married to get famous together at yeah the time. um I, I i understand from a pr standpoint that's that was that decision makes sense i wonder if uh i wonder if that was a a hard decision for her. I wonder if she was just like not really into it anymore. If she didn't really yeah. want to go into film, you know, I'll, like why rather us have stable income than keep yeah. this going. Like, I'll look, I'll look yeah. further into it. I would love to hear. And again, that email that we'll set up at mm -hmm. some point, please email us. If you know anything mm -hmm. about what happened to James Cagney's yeah. wife here and all this, <laughs> if you have any information, yeah. call this number. <laughs> <A> missing person, <laughs> missing person's report. Yeah. <laughs> so, so his brother, Harry's back in LA acting as his agent. And he's he's fighting with Warner Brothers uh, for a little bit, and they finally agree that if oh well, if the CAG would make his return, they'd sign a deal with him for a thousand dollars a week, which is fifteen grand a week nowadays, sixty grand a month, seven hundred two seven hundred twenty grand a year, basically. Okay. So there. So that's that's a sizable jump. A sizable jump. A yeah. sizable jump. So 1932. But are they also at this point still saying, uh, however, this is uh, you're locked into this for the next six years? Yeah, you're locked into this for six years. You still have to do press for other movies for mm -hmm. Warner Brothers that aren't yours. Okay. And also, so he didn't, at this point, he has not renegotiated future renegotiations. No, he hasn't. Okay. He hasn't. He hasn't negotiated that yet. And also, uh, one of the important things to remember right now is he also had not yet renegotiated how many pictures per year that he would do, and that okay. became a huge hanging okay. point for him. But how many is he supposed to do a year right now? I mean, right now Just they literally they would want. have him do like 10 a year wow. or some shit. Like, it was uh, maybe not 10. Yeah. I might be exaggerating, but yeah. a lot. He was okay. doing a movie. He would do two movies at a time for, like, you know, and they wow. would finish them both within like two months period, and he would yeah. want to do another two at a time and another – so, but right ended. now, there's not a specific movie in his contract, or just kind of like as many as we want you to do. Well, he no, there basically he came back in 1932. He comes back. The first movie that he did under this new contract was called Taxi, mm -hmm. and this film was where that most famous quote came from: "Come out and take it, you dirty yellow-bellied rat, or I'll give it to you through the door." 
And that was uh, <laughs> I said. Make sh- I have in the notes here. Make sure that that's the actual quote. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I we must got have right. already learned my lesson <laughs> because that it became misquoted. Like we were talking about earlier, that who are you, dirty rat? And then a bunch of people just see. Yeah, <laughs> like, see. Yeah, that yeah. somehow. I mean, it's funny because like the whole Dick Tracy cartoons came from that. Ah, what are you doing? Copper saying yeah. Copper, like that character became popularized, very caricaturized, I should say. Oh yeah. During all that Dick Tracy shit. And he does. It is a full send, like, come out and take it, you dirty yellow bellied rat. You know, it's like it is full old sneery mafia guy for sure, for sure. And uh but I mean at that time you went and saw the movie and I think at, during those times, if you couldn't remember the exact quote, it's not like you could just Google it. Right. You know? yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. you'd have it's to go see easy. the damn thing again yeah. just to get the quote right. <laughs> Unless they like printed it out in the papers. A lot easier to, to get stuff misquoted back yeah, then. I'm I sure. don't have. I mean, if you have if another nickel you know, for me to go see the movie, I'll take it. But <laughs> I think they would just contact the studio and be like, what's in the script? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they like would press call. release. I don't think it would be that difficult. It's like a fucking phone call. Oh, call up Warner Brothers and say, I don't want to misquote the movie when I'm talking to my friends at the bar. Can I, can I speak to Jack real quick? I'm on the game well over here on Sepulveda Avenue, and I'm wondering <laughs> what that quote was that James Cagney you know, said. I wonder if that was the studio that became KTLA. <laughs> Charlie Tuna. We're going to keep that Charlie Tuna part in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, We're going to yeah. keep that for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but he also, in Taxi, he also he spoke fluent Yiddish in the beginning of the film. And that just made critics like jizz. You know, they jizz their joppers, as I have it here in, here in my notes. <laughs> this film was also the first film that we see old Cellar Door Cagney's moves. This is the first movie that he danced on screen. And it was also the last film that he would allow live ammo to be fired at him. This was where he drew the line. <laughs> so it didn't take long for him to get to. I don't. I don't want. The... I don't want this anymore. He, he became real not fun real fast. You know. I guess He's... we can't shoot at the cag anymore. Yeah, dude. Jack Wars just like, come on, man, stop being lame. Stop being a bummer. Well, he almost dies. Whatever. Uh, there's wait, a was, scene. That, yeah. Wait. Is it because he got like a way too close yes, to the call? Okay. Yeah. There's a scene where I love this movie too. I definitely go watch this Taxi with James Cagney. It's so good. There's a scene where he's in the window of this old warehouse running with his revolver. And there's all these like cool fucking noir shots of him with his revolver running through this old warehouse. Very cool. And he kind of gets the drop on some cops down below him. They're still like in the parking lot or whatever. And on action, he was going to fire a few rounds at them, duck down below the windowsill and, you know, big mechanic Johnny with the Thompson was going to open fire into the window. And he was supposed to just kind of spray it at him. And the window that he was standing in was enclosed in this like steel bevel, basically. And a bullet hit that ricocheted and went right where Cagney's head had like just been. But what are they supposed to do if they can't use live ammo? I know, right? I mean, come on. They just started doing squibs and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because I've never seen uh, either of the taxis, actually. Is the taxi with Robert De Niro a remake of this movie? No. no. Okay. Um, Absolutely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can see where you're coming from, though. But nah, it was... 
That movie was really good though. Taxi with James Cagney is a good one. Cool. This is uh, unbelievable, but that is that's all I have for part two. Oh wait, really? Yeah. Oh, so you're going in a three parter. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I guess we, yeah, this would be a three parter. Well, wait. So well, I have some more questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I have let's open it for questions. <laughs> I have a question. Okay. Uh, did did they change the note shooting at real live ammo uh, across the board or just for Cagney? Like, would, did they have? Did he make a whole studio stop doing this in general, or they were just like, okay, Cagney does Cagney, Cagney gets to be the one who gets to yeah. the rest of you fuckers are still getting shot fly ammo. Basically, basically, yeah, Cagney. I mean, it was another one of those things where it just depended on how big of a star you were. How you know? would that it not was... cause a massive revolt? I know. Like, did, well, did they change it for other big actors too? Because I, f- I feel like there's a lot of people who'd be like, I'm just as big as him. Like, if he's not getting shot, and I don't want to get shot. Well, he made this declaration of no more shooting at me in 1932. And a year later, uh, part three is going to be all about the walkouts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get into the walkout for these studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, part three, we're going to talk about the the formation of the Screen Actors Guild in 1933. Which he was a big part of. He was a big part of the beginning. So when SAG came along, that is where people started. Uh, people stopped shooting at people for right. the most part. Okay, that was that was one of the that was one of the things in the contract. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No more yeah. shooting at our actors. You know. Nice. But also, yeah. fun fact to keep in mind. You know, not only were people getting shot at with bullets, but women were getting hit by a professional boxer. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so felt like we should remind ourselves that he Seriously. was a professional boxer. Those those before, women, those yeah. women really don't get enough recognition for being slapped by every man in Hollywood back in those days. Yeah, and like sure. and like you said, like it's it's some of they were supposed to be fake, but I'm sure some of oh, them yeah, just got no. slapped. Part three, we're gonna bring you some James Cagney action. Uh, we're gonna be talking about him his war with the studios i guess uh part one we told you all about his life part two we told you about him becoming a big movie star a little bit about his film career a little bit about slapping women and part three we're going to tell you about how he went to war with warner brothers and it was it was very ugly but it was also a very necessary war to happen for film history the history of film the history of film the history of film so is this episode two, The Empire Slaps Back? Charlie, tuna in the morning. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, if that's it, um, I guess uh, we'll, uh, we can close out with uh, where people can find us. Dev, where can people find you? Sailor underscore Dev on social media. And check out Abracadabra Films and My Fish app. Uh, you can find me uh, at Drake Cummings on Instagram, at Drake underscore Cummings on uh, Twitter. And um, I'm sure by the time this goes up, there's like uh, film history, history of film, socials everywhere that you can find socials. So check those out. Indeed. We have a Patreon. If you guys want to sign up for our Patreon, we got different tiers, but we go through and have a bunch of cool stuff we do. We're going to go through and watch movies with you guys so you can hear our commentary. Yeah. And who knows? There may or may not be a drinking game involved. Yeah. I don't know. And there's we'll some see. silent films that I want to dub. with. Like I want, yeah. to, I want us to speak. Yeah. It's, it, Redub it's it. a whole thing. It's going to be fun. We're also on Patreon. We're going to be doing basically the history everything history the history of everything <laughs> i want to get into this would be a long road but yeah. we're gonna get into boxing we're gonna do the history of 
cars. I'll do I some mean, game episodes and stuff. And yeah, everything. We're gonna yeah. anything, and we'll have at some point just write in. What do you want to know the history of? What do you mm. feel like? What do you want us to do deep dive on? You know, anything. Right, yeah. If you're a top tier Patreon member, you get to contribute to the formation and content of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> boom. So a lot of fun stuff coming. And but, I've been uh, I've been James Wyatt Scott, and you can find me hammered drunk on the back lot of Warner Brothers <laughs> with a Thompson submachine gun in my hand, getting ready for that action call, baby. <laughs> and also at Jimmy Delore or at James Wyatt Scott on Instagram. All right, that's been the film history. history. The history of film. History of film. film. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs>